Hello, this is Beyond the Bell with WASTA, Wisconsin's hub for professional development for anyone working in out-of-school time programs and youth-serving organizations. It's our mission to help you provide the highest quality care to children and their families. If you wish you had an extra tool going into programming to help guide behaviors in a productive way, wish you knew more about how to provide the whole family with support, or you want to enhance your own well-being, then this is the home for you. We know what it's like to feel like you never have enough time or resources to meet everyone's needs, and we're here to support you through the challenges. Stay tuned as we explore new ideas and strategies that you can use right away. I'm Rachel Sharon, health educator with Marshfield Clinic Health System Center for Community Health Advancement and Wisconsin Out of School Time Alliance. We're excited you're listening today to our conversation with Dr. Kelsey Offenwagner. Dr. Offenwagner is a clinical psychologist with Marshfield Clinic Health System who's licensed in Illinois and Wisconsin. She works with families and caregivers of children and adolescents who experience behavioral difficulties, social and emotional challenges, and developmental concerns. Dr. Offenwanger participates in multidisciplinary teams across Marshfield Clinic Health System and provides evidence-based interventions to after-school programs. She's joining us today to help us process what things are in our control, how this relates to emotional regulation, and how to help teach this concept to kids. Welcome. Thank you, Rachel. Through your presentation on naming and taming emotions, we learned that whether or not we have gut reactions or emotions about things are not necessarily always in our control but how we respond to those feelings is. Recognizing the difference and knowing when and how to shift your thinking can take a lot of cognitive strength and energy. Let's break it down a little bit. First, will you remind us what's going on in the nervous system and in the brain before emotions arise? Absolutely. So the nervous system includes our brain, spinal cord, and nerves. This system sends messages back and forth between the brain and the body. Within that nervous system, there are a couple groups of neurons involved in processing different feelings that we have. One group relays information to the part of our brain that seeks out those rewarding experiences, while the other sends information to our amygdala. So our amygdala is a tiny almond shape in our brain. Even though it's tiny, it's quite mighty, and it plays an important role in managing emotions and is where our fight, flight, or freeze response begins. We often refer to this as the downstairs part of the brain. The upstairs part of our brain is part of that prefrontal cortex. So I mentioned processing those other feelings. This area helps us handle fear and make good decisions. So ultimately, we can include naming our feelings instead of acting on them. Thanks, Dr. O. It's helpful to have those analogies of the almonds and all the things happening in our bodies and our brains because, like we're talking about, not everything is in our control, and it's a complex system. And so we always kind of have to know what is and isn't going to work for us. So how might someone know that they're having an emotion, even if they can't name it yet? So we might know if we're having an emotion before we can name it due to our body sending us signals, or I'll call them clues at times, in the form of physiological changes. So for example, um, our heart may start to beat faster and faster before an important test or presentation. Our stomach may start to experience those butterflies or feeling maybe a little bit sick when we forget something at home or want to share something we might be nervous about. Our hands may become really sweaty and clammy when we think we might be in trouble or someone is mad at us. Our face may turn red when we think we may be being judged. Or even our hearing can become reduced when we start to feel tension in our bodies. So these clues or cues can help remind us that the mind and body are connected and that we may start to have a certain feeling or emotion come up. 
That's amazing. It's signals from all over. I've never thought about the hearing before, but now that you say Mm -hmm. that, you can imagine those scenarios where you kind of zoom in or zoom out in a moment. And that's our body telling us that there's something coming up. Absolutely. Our senses become baby impaired a little bit. So once you recognize you're having an emotion, how do you name it? So naming an emotion can come in different forms and often can depend on one's developmental level and their personal experiences. So for kids, even under three, they're still developing emotions and language. However, this shouldn't stop us from talking to babies and toddlers about their feelings. The more we as adults or caregivers become comfortable talking about emotions, the more likely our little ones will too. So to start off, I would start labeling the emotion that you see in the child and then add context. So for example, you can say, you have a big smile on your face. You like those tickles or you look happy. Or on the other side, you can say, oh, you're looking sad. Is it because you bumped your head? You can always take a guess if you don't know. Kids do a wonderful job at telling us when we're wrong, if we guess a wrong feeling. And ultimately, we want that feedback from them. So after we start kind of noticing and labeling the emotions in them, we want to help them work on naming their own feelings. So for example, oh, your brother looks really frustrated. Or if you're watching a cartoon, Marshall looks worried that Sky will get hurt. Look at how big his eyes are. So when reaching out to kids and toddlers, especially those that start to go into school age, they're going to start to comprehend their own feelings, start to gain some of that perspective taking and recognize the emotions in others. And one of the best times to help teach or model some of these emotions are when the child is regulated or what we call the green zone and during their play activities. So we can point out how fast their car is going or the face of their character. If they're playing with dolls, action figures, if they start to get fussy or annoyed, is it because they're hungry or they're sad or they're angry and ready to fight? So modeling those feelings in ourselves, noticing those feelings in their characters can be extremely helpful. And this helps teach them those tools to notice them. Also, when we think about across different settings outside of the home, we can really encourage talking about emotions in the classroom and after school programs, through books, or even weekly themes about emotions. This can help normalize their experiences and encourage emotional expressions across the adults that they interact with in their lives. As you name all these examples, I'm thinking of all the different ages of kids, and it really demonstrates how this is a building process and also a two-way process that involves us, the grown-ups. It's not something that just comes overnight, but that we build and we help facilitate that learning. So why is it just so powerful to name the emotion? What about naming it and pinning it down makes it so helpful? I'm really glad you asked that question. So it's powerful to label our emotions to help us gain more control over them. Oftentimes when our emotions become so big, we feel helpless, we feel lost. Um, So Dr. Dan Siegel is a great author of a best-selling book called The Whole Brain Child. And he coined the phrase, name it to tame it. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the research. So when we experience a strong emotion and anxiety, you can help reduce that stress and tension up to 50% by just simply noticing and naming that experience out loud. Another author named Mitch Ablett of Tame Reactive Emotions by naming them wrote, if we can see the emotion, we don't have to be the emotion. So what that means is that when we ignore our feelings, we don't talk about them, we push them aside, they tend to become bigger and bigger and bigger, like a balloon slowly filling up with air before it pops. So think about this. We're all likely to feel frustrated at some point in our lives, 
But that doesn't mean that we're a negative or pessimistic person. We can also be upset with a friend, a colleague, and that does not mean that we are a bad friend or a bad employee. For kids, this is helpful because we do not want them to associate making a poor choice or having a not so great thought with them being a bad kid. So the more that we can separate a particular negative feeling, say it out loud, it helps to create distance from it from ourselves and makes it more manageable. It sounds like you're really talking about naming is an intervention in and of itself. And once we get there, then we can talk about what we do next. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, if we're in a tricky situation or even a happy situation, we've, we've named our emotion, then what do we do about it? So the goal is ultimately to express that emotion in some way. So I like to call this the feeling plan of it. Whether it's anger, excitement, joy, frustration, the plan is universal. And there's a few different steps. So the first step is just to stop. Just to stop and notice that feeling. So we can start to be able to name it. The second step is to breathe. So this taps into our nervous system, as we talked about earlier, and helps calm that amygdala, that fight, flight, or freeze response. When our amygdala starts to calm down through breathing, we can better communicate with our upstairs brain. And our upstairs brain helps us decide how to respond. And that takes us to the third step. So the third step is to think and take a break if we can. When we try and think about explaining this concept to kids and teens, um, I prefer to draw it out. You can reference the mind-body connection that we talked about earlier. You can have a body shape through anatomy and colors. And we can talk about how naming allows us to pause and use our breath to help calm down our physiology. That's getting us in that green zone. This helps take our amygdala from that fight, flight, or free state to the yellow zone that it's in to one where that frontal lobe those prefrontal abilities have a chance to kick into action. So the frontal lobe is ultimately where we can start to make sense of what is going on, whether we're really in danger or not, and can help us prevent from losing our cool and getting ultimately in that red zone. So the more that we can express that emotion in some way and have time to stop and think about what it is that we're feeling, we can then make healthy choices. You mentioned how emotions help us figure out what's going on and kind of reading the world around us, even though sometimes I think we're told to hide an emotion or get rid of it as quickly as we can. So what are some ways we can tell that an emotion is telling us to change a thought or change our environment so that we can get safer? No, I think that's a little bit more complex of a question um, because it comes down to that mind-body connection being so powerful. Um, so ultimately, we need to become better through practice at listening to what we are experiencing internally so we can make more adaptive changes externally. So this starts with trying to make sense of what's going on. Are we in danger? Are we not? Can we use our feeling plan that stop breathing and thinking? We know breathing helps our upstairs and downstairs brain communicate and then ideally come up with a plan moving forward. Is it a plan that, okay, hey, we're a little nervous, but we got this. We have a presentation. We got to get through it. Or is it, okay, this keeps coming back up day in and day out. Do I need to shift what I'm thinking about it? So the more that we can stay calm and regulated, the better choices that we can make. We can decipher whether our heart is racing because we're nervous. We can decipher whether, again, we need an intervention now or later. And being aware of our body signals and taking the time to breathe helps us, again, regain control over those thoughts and feelings to have the best chance at making a choice that ultimately we're going to be proud of. So how do we explain this all to a kid in one of our programs? So thinking about explaining it to kids, you know, practice and play go hand in hand. I would also start by establishing some visuals in common areas. Kids learn great through visuals and through pictures as that language is still developing. 
And then ideally with those visuals, having the pictures on there and then the adults that are surrounding them, caregivers, teachers, staff, administrators, using the same consistent language. So kids learn best when they receive the same messages from different sources across their setting. Once the groundwork is established among the adults involved in their lives, I would start to introduce feelings as colors. A program that I tend to use that's been evidence-based is the zones of regulation. I also encourage families and schools to watch the movie Inside Out, which is based on the five core emotions. So when thinking about what this would ultimately look like when explaining it to a classroom or a kid one-on-one, there's different scripts that you can kind of come up with to use your own language. Um, But a way that I like to talk about it would be such as today, we're going to learn about four colors that we can use to talk about our feelings. Blue, green, yellow, and red. The blue zone is when we're feeling bored, sad, sick, tired. The green zone is when we're kind of feeling happy, we're calm, we're focused. It feels good to be green. The yellow zone is uh, when we're coming too silly, we're super excited, or we're getting pretty frustrated or annoyed. We're still in control of our feelings, but it's hard to listen and follow rules when we're yellow. And then there's the red zone. That's when we've flipped our lid, the downstairs and upstairs brain are not communicating very well, and we're losing control. We are really upset when we're in the red zone. It does not feel good to be red. That would be kind of a script I would use to introduce the feelings. And ultimately, we can really highlight by owning our feelings, using those I feel statements, we can feel better. We can give others clues about what we're feeling. The more we talk about our feelings, the less scary it can feel. And if we don't know how we're feeling, we can always resort to a color. Adults and kids alike, we can use that blue, green, yellow, or red. That makes a lot of sense. And I like the idea of adults and kids using it alike. Um, How might you change the messaging for a teen versus an elementary student, though? So typically, you know, I would change the message or modality being used for a teen when compared to an elementary age student. Um, However, times when I may not would be when the developmental level or those adaptive functioning skills of the teen are more similar to that of a younger child or vice versa. Um, While we talked more about kids today, it's important to point out that if a teen feels like we're not going to listen or that you might criticize what they're saying, they're not likely to open up about what's really going on. So we need, I think, to be a lot more patient with our teens, despite them having larger vocabularies or being able to talk about their speech more. So for example, the first step that I think is really important when it comes to teens is again, the adults practicing active listening. And active listening is when we are not thinking about anything else that's going on other than what is exactly being said to us. We're looking at the person in front of us. We're not trying to think of advice or whether what they're saying is true or not. We don't have to agree or disagree, which is kind of pretty nice. Um, They just need to know that we're there for them, that we hear what they're saying without any judgment. And studies have shown that teens tend to pay closer attention to what we say and do when they are sharing something that is important to them. So to practice that active listening, what we do is we respect their experiences and we reflect back their words. And this could sound like, Ah, I hear how upset you were when Olivia didn't include you. Or you really wanted to go to the party and don't think it's fair you had to stay home. We're not adding in judgment or thoughts. We're just simply reflecting back and listening to what they have to say. And this helps prevent kids and teens from shutting down or getting defensive. So ultimately, when we work with teens and kids of all ages, we should be feeling fortunate to hear their opinions and should praise them for sharing their thoughts and feelings with us. 
I think that's such a good way to wrap up this conversation, just that we're partners and we're there to active listen. And that's really what we're doing no matter what the age or when we're needing to identify these things even in ourselves so that we can regulate and work with kids as well. Dr. Offenwanger, thank you so much for diving into this topic with us and thank you for listening in. We hope you leave today with a few more tools in your toolbox. Be sure to visit our website and sign up for our emails where we share information about all of our upcoming professional development opportunities. Thank you very much for your time today.